Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, I want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are uh, meeting together at one of our other regional centers in Airdrie and Bridgeland and also in South Calgary and Northwest Calgary in the Crowfoot Theatres. Um, and also, of course, we want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we're in a series we're calling Christianity 101 in which we're examining the fundamentals of the faith. And presently, we're learning what the Bible has to say about prayer and how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. So would you stand with me and join me in reading this passage together in Matthew 6. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may be seated. So up to this point, we've looked at the first four parts of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and give us today our daily bread. We come now to the last two parts of Jesus' model prayer. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, we're going to look at both of these, but I want to reverse the order and talk about forgiveness last because it will lead us so well into our time around the Lord's table, celebrating his death and resurrection. So let's get started. Jesus says we're to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this is really a prayer asking for God's protection. Sort of like the fellow who prayed, Lord, my wife is out Christmas shopping right now. Please protect our bank account. <laughs> the question is, does God actually lead us into temptation? Well, before I attempt to answer that, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we don't need a lot of help finding temptation. Haddon Robinson passed a young woman in a shopping mall wearing a sweatshirt that said, lead me not into temptation. I can find the way all by myself. And that is so true. We like temptation. We're drawn to it effortlessly. But having clarified this, does God lead us into temptation? Well, the Greek word that's used here, parasmus, can mean one of two things. It can mean temptation, or it can refer to trials or tests. The Apostle James utilizes both of those meanings um, in the same chapter. In James 1.13, James writes, When tempted, Parasmus, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Well, there in short is your answer. James makes it very clear here that God does not tempt us in the sense that he does not entice us to sin. His very nature is contrary to that. 
And yet a few verses earlier, if you go back to verse 2, James writes this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing, there's that word, parasmus, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. In this scripture, James says, God does allow us to face trials in order to grow us spiritually and to strengthen our character and our devotion to him. So what's the difference between a temptation and a trial or a test? Well, fundamentally, the difference is one of the motivation of the person or the one who is doing the tempting or giving the trial. Our Heavenly Father's motivation or desire is always to see us grow through the trials He allows to come our way, not to entice us into sin. However, there is someone whose motivation is to tempt us. It is to entice us into sinning, and it is the evil one. Satan is the enemy of our souls, and he would destroy us if he could. And he wants to separate us from God. He wants to convince us that God is not our father. But rather that God is our enemy. He wants to convince us that our little kingdom matters. That we should be investing ourselves totally into the kingdom of now. He wants to convince us not to forgive. To not share the abundance he's given to us with others. And so when we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we're really praying, Father, please lead us away from our enemy. Make us sensitive to him and the traps and the temptations that he places in our way in order to discourage us and to defeat us. Keep us from sliding mindlessly toward evil today and give us the strength and the power to overcome temptation in our lives, whether from Satan or our society or from our own sinful nature. Then Jesus said, pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now from time to time, someone will ask me, pastor, when I asked the Lord to forgive my sins and I embraced him as my Savior and Lord, the Bible says all my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. And then they will quote passages like Ephesians 1, 7, which says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And so they will then go on to ask, if the problem of sin has been completely dealt with by Christ's death on the cross, then why does Jesus tell us here in the Lord's Prayer to pray, forgive us our debts? Well, the way I try to explain it is this. The Bible teaches that we live in two realms. We live in the spiritual realm. We live in the earthly realm. The spiritual realm is the eternal, unseen realm. The natural realm is the temporary, earthly, visible realm, the realm in which we live. 2 Corinthians 4.18 talks about these two realms. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Now, when we embrace Christ by faith and we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, in the spiritual realm, God takes the sin that is on our account and he puts it on Christ's account. And he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and he puts it on our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains that this way. God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consequently, in the spiritual realm, we are a new creation in Christ. We are totally forgiven and righteous in the eyes of God because we are in Christ and he is in us and he is perfect and he is righteous in the sight of God. However, in the natural or the earthly realm where we live, we are still imperfect. We are still growing in Christ. The Bible, some translations refers to it as being sanctified. We're still in the process of being sanctified. And as a result, we say things and we do things which negatively impact our relationship with God and with others. In short, in the earthly realm, in the earthly realm we still sin. These sins do not affect our position in Christ in the heavenly realm because that has been established. But it does affect the quality of our relationship with Christ. Not because Christ pulls away from us when we sin, but because our sin pulls us away from him. And so when we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, we're not saying this in order to be forgiven. Because as I've said, in the spiritual realm, we've already been forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future. It was dealt with at the cross. Once for all. What we're doing is admitting and confessing to God that we've sinned. We're letting him know that we are sorry for allowing sin, our sin, to affect our intimacy with him in this life. Now, with that clarification in mind, notice that we're not just to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. We're also to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We need to be forgiven, but we also need to forgive others who have hurt us in some way. Now, you know, my sense is Extending grace to those who have hurt us is not one of our top priorities. It's not something that comes easily. It's one of the things that we tend to push to the sidelines of our life. Recently I read about a small church that was, on, that, that was run behind the scenes by two very powerful women who did not get along with each other. They didn't like each other. And they did all they could to hurt each other. Without blinking, they would repeat bad things about each other and distort them to make it worse. And this went on week after week, month after month, year after year. And what's striking is not just that they didn't forgive each other, but nobody in the church actually expected them to. People would have been shocked if they had actually forgiven each other. They just got used to unforgiveness and they accepted it. 
You know, stories like this abound. We all know situations like this or have heard of situations like this. Stories like the fellow who is seething with anger toward a gal who broke up with him and now will take every opportunity he can to tarnish her reputation. Or about a family who haven't talked to each other in years because of issues around the family estate. Or about a handful of employees who are poisoning the culture of their company because they feel they were passed over for a promotion or they're being treated unfairly. Or about a person who rejected a close friend who lovingly and courageously told him the truth about a blind spot or a weakness in his life. These stories are endless. There are all kinds of relationships that are on the rocks because one or both of the people that are involved in this state of unforgiveness has chosen unforgiveness over forgiveness. In light of our teaching today, I think it's very important. Every person in this worship center, young or old, is very clear on what Jesus thinks about that. Jesus says, pray. Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If we really want to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we need to examine what he says over in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to invite you to turn to that chapter. Look down to verse 21. We're going to read this passage together. I'll read it up here. You can follow along. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now it's pretty clear here how Jesus feels about unforgiveness. 
Here's a couple of observations I want to make from this passage. First of all, if we refuse to forgive our debtors, we'll never have healthy, long-lasting relationships. In verse 21, Peter approaches Jesus and he asks this question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter apparently has been hurt. He's been taken advantage of by someone. And he wants to know from Jesus if there's a limit to how many times he needs to forgive this person. He wants to know if there's a time that he can finally get to where he can write this person off and hate him for the rest of his life. And Jesus essentially says, no, there isn't a limit. You know, so often in our friendships, we think if something goes wrong, if one person hurts another person, the friendship is over, or it can never be the same again. And yet Jesus essentially is telling Peter here, it doesn't have to be over. We need to realize that it's normal for people to hurt each other in relationships. Jesus implies here it's quite possible that people in a lifelong friendship or a lifelong marriage, they might hurt each other 500 times or more. How many of you would say you've hit that number already? <laughs> Got a few takers. That's good. It's true. But you see, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But here's the thing. Just because a relationship has suffered a hurt of some kind does not mean it has to end. If it ends, it's because we choose for it to end. A relationship can be healed. It can be made even stronger than it was before the hurt occurred. If those involved will simply let go of their pride and their resentment and pursue forgiveness. It's sad, but we have a lot of lonely people today. Not because they haven't had meaningful friendships or meaningful relationships with family members, but because somewhere along the way when they were hurt, when they didn't get their way, or when they felt neglected in some way in those relationships, they refused to love, to keep loving and forgiving. And that's why my first observation from what Jesus is saying here is if we refuse to forgive our debtors, we'll never have healthy, long-lasting relationships. My second observation is this. If we refuse to forgive our debtors, we don't understand how much we have been forgiven. The man in Jesus' parable here owed the king 10,000 talents, the largest amount that could be counted in that day. There was no higher number. That would be like having a debt as big as the U.S. national debt, which I understand is now at $18 trillion. I mean, I don't even know what that is. It's an amount so large that it, it's impossible for this servant to repay it. And yet the king has compassion on him. He responds to his plea for grace by not only releasing him 
from prison and from bondage, but forgiving him of his debt. And before you pass over that, because we can pass over it so quickly, who do you think paid for that debt? Who took the loss? It was the king who took the loss. He paid the debt himself. Our capacity to forgive begins by acknowledging that we owe a great debt. Colossians 3.5 reminds us of our moral debt. It lists a number of a number of things that many of us have committed at one time or another, including sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. I mean, just add to that our selfishness, our pride, the promises we've broken, the reputations that we've trashed behind the scenes, the people we've hurt. This is a very short list of the moral debt that we owe, a debt so great that we could never repay it. And you know, God doesn't sit down with us to work out a repayment plan like a mortgage broker would. No, he offers full and free forgiveness. He doesn't just cancel our debt, but he actually pays for the debt himself through Christ's death on the cross. Talk about a reason to be grateful. To thank God for his love and his outrageous grace. Now, I think we understand this principle. At least most of us do. The question is, how do we know that we not only understand grace, but have truly experienced the grace and forgiveness of God. You know how we know? When we're willing to forgive our debtors. Jesus continues his story saying that the man who was just forgiven the equivalent of trillions of dollars, he goes out and he finds a man who owes him a few bucks. And he grabs him by the throat, demanding payment. And when the man pleads for mercy, he not only refuses to forgive him, but he actually has him thrown in prison. He won't even give him enough time to pay back those few dollars. You see, it's very evident that this fellow doesn't understand grace. When he came to the king pleading for mercy, he wasn't looking for forgiveness. He was looking to get off the hook. That's all he was looking for. And consequently, his heart wasn't radically changed by the grace and the forgiveness that was shown him by the king. And we know that just by observing how he treated the man who owed him a little money. There was no compassion. There was no grace. There was no mercy. His spirit, his tone, his actions clearly communicated that he did not understand or experience the grace and the forgiveness of the king. Remember Zacchaeus? When he received grace, his heart was radically changed. We know that not just through his words, but by his actions. 
In Luke 19, verse 8, it's, he said to Jesus, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You could see this man was changed from the inside out. And remember what Jesus said about him? Today salvation has come to this house. This man was changed. And it showed up in the, what he did with his fortune. Now make no mistake, friends. The sign that we are forgiven is found in our willingness to forgive others. So let me bring this home to where we live today. When someone hurts us, slanders us, cheats us, betrays us, Isn't it true that our first reaction is to put them in a prison of our own making? A place in our imagination where they pay for what they did to us? Isn't it true that sometimes we put them in our prison because it feels good to nurse the grudge, the anger that we have, to rehearse what we would say to them were it to happen again, or what we will say to them when we see them again. Isn't it true it feels good to make them pay by avoiding them, by giving them the silent treatment, refusing to give them eye contact or to cooperate? You didn't do it my way, count me out. And yet as we fantasize getting back at these folks, Jesus reminds us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Forgive me, Lord, for forgetting the mountain of moral debt I owed you and that by your grace you freely canceled and paid through Christ's death on the cross. Forgive me. For ignoring that. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does this mean? Does this mean that by forgiving people we can earn forgiveness? Absolutely not. We can never earn forgiveness. Jesus paid the price for our forgiveness totally and once for all on the cross. What it means is this. The sign that we have been forgiven that Christ is in us and that we are in him. The fact that there has been a change of heart and mind is found in our willingness to forgive others. Is found in having this spirit of grace and mercy. If we're not willing to forgive other people, that is evidence that we do not know. We have not experienced. We have not been transformed by the grace and the forgiveness of God ourselves. Now let me be clear about what forgiveness is not. This is very important. To forgive someone does not mean to excuse them from wrongdoing or to tolerate wrongdoing. It does not mean allowing abusive or dishonest or just plain unacceptable behavior to go on and not confront it. To let the person in question 
escape the legal consequences of their action. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciling with someone. If someone sins against you but refuses to acknowledge the truth and to repent and to change, or if you sin against someone and you seek their forgiveness but they refuse to forgive you, or for that matter, they don't want to have anything to do with you, then you may not be able to reconcile with them. But that's okay because your responsibility is to do what God calls you to do. You cannot be responsible for what the other person does or doesn't do. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is what forgiveness does not mean. What forgiveness does mean is that you give up the right to hurt them back. You wish them well before God. And you can do that. It may take a long time. You may need a lot of help. But it's the only way because if you don't release those who have hurt you from the prison that you've put them in, you will find that you are chained to the bars of the same prison. And you will not only stand in the way of all that God wants to do in you and through you, but you will never know true freedom and joy and inner peace until you forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. In fact, if you look at verse 34, it says, The master turned this ungrateful, merciless man over to the jailers to be tortured. Now, that's pretty tough language, isn't it? I want you to remember that this is a parable. It isn't intended to describe reality, but to make a spiritual point. I believe the jailers here represent our enemy, Satan, and his demons. And the point that Jesus is making here is when we don't forgive, when we hold on to resentment or anger, Satan will seek to torture us with even more sinister and resentful thoughts. He will seek to harden our heart. He will seek to harden our pride. He will seek to inflame our anger into rage and to rob us of peace and joy because in essence we're giving him permission by not forgiving. And folks, that's the story of our world. That is happening every day all over this planet. I believe this is the story behind what is happening in the Middle East. It's the story behind what happened in Paris a few weeks ago. And the mass shootings that we hear about almost every week, it seems. It's the story behind broken friendships, broken marriages, and families. Unforgiveness poisons us from the inside out. It chains us to the person that we're angry with. It saps us of energy and joy. It, make a, it taints our relationships. The misery we have inside, the unhappiness we have inside, we just pour out, we spew it out to other people around us in negative ways, hurtful ways. 
And Jesus says, I don't want people who are in my kingdom living this way. Through his prayer here, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, you don't use your newfound freedom to stick it to people, to make people pay by putting them in your personal prison. No, you use your freedom in Christ to set them free. So let me ask you, be real honest now. Do you have anyone in your prison that you need to set free? Can you picture them? You're saying, there's too many. I'm trying to figure them all out here. Try to focus on one for now. Are you the kind of person who's quick to extend grace and second chances? Is there anyone who you need to extend a second chance to? C.S. Lewis put it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. In short, to be a Christian, friends, means to be a forgiver. Means to be a forgiver. It's part of our identity, who we are in Christ. I'll close with this. Shauna Nequist tells a story about one of her best friends. She and her husband had been through a long, dark, difficult season in their marriage. Resentment and anger had built on both sides. They hated who they had become. They hated what their marriage had become. And then he did one more thing. One more very hurtful thing. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And she was done. She started packing. He begged her to just get in the car so they could go for a drive together. You see, he loved to drive. And as a couple, they had spent hours and hours of their life together just driving all over their city. He begged her, can we go for a drive? And she said, I'll get in the car, but I won't talk. And don't you dare touch me. And so they got in the car, and they drove, and they drove. They drove up and down hills. They wound through canyons, sitting side by side in silence, not touching. They passed all the places where their, li their lives had unfolded over the years. Places they'd worked. Their kids' school. Restaurants that they'd been to when they were dating. Finally, as they turned toward home, they came over the hill, and before them was the whole city, the water, the bridges, the lights, the city where their boys were born, the place where their life had unfolded. And Shauna says, my friend, at that point, took a deep breath, released her pride and her anger, and she held out her hand to her husband. 
She knew in that moment that if she extended her hand and he took it, she would have to leave the past behind and they would have to make a new future together. When she extended her hand, she was saying to him, I will not go back to being who we were. But I will help us create a new future together. By extending her hand, she was saying, I'm choosing my marriage over my pride and my need to be right. I'm taking off my judicial robe. I am choosing to forgive. Maybe that's where you are right now. What would it look like for you to hold out your hand and to forgive? Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? <clears throat> in a moment, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together. And this time in preparation, we're only going to do one thing. We're going to repeat the Lord's Prayer together again. The words will be on the screen in front of you. And they're there because I want us to repeat the Lord's Prayer very slowly and thoughtfully. And when we get to the part and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I want us to stop right there. There's going to be a time of silence during which I want you to prayerfully do two things. First of all, I want you to focus on Jesus and I want you to thank him. I want you to thank him for dying on the cross to pay for the mountain of debt that we had. Friends, if you're a follower of Christ, I say the mountain of debt that we had. Thank him for that. That he forgave us by his grace. And forgiving you and me a new and a full life here on earth. An eternal life through his resurrection power. Furthermore, I want you to ask God to bring your, to your mind anyone who owes you a debt. Someone you've imprisoned in your mind for whatever reason it was. And you really haven't forgiven them. You know the bitterness that you have. The anger that's there is destroying you. And that as much as you haven't set them free, you yourself are not free. Then regardless of how you feel, I want to challenge you to take a step of faith and make a decision because forgiveness is a decision, friends. Don't go according to your feelings. Make a decision to forgive your debtor, the person who has hurt you in some way, even as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. And then ask the Lord to show you what he would have you do to extend love and grace to that person this coming week. He may challenge some of you to make a phone call or to write a note or a letter. He may speak, may challenge you to speak directly to that person or to make an appointment 
with a godly friend or a pastor or a biblical counselor to receive help and guidance on laying down your resentment and finding healing and no longer being defined by what that person did to you. No longer living as a victim, but finding true freedom in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 22, we read, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father God, we ask that you would bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine, that we receiving them may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we prayed to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. 